I'm Dr. Sheldon L. Akins from the Leading Equity Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Mikhail Deckel. She's the author of Tehran Children, A Holocaust Odyssey, published in 2019. Mikhail recounts the story of her father's escape from Nazi Germany, explains how she researched and uncovered the history, and shares her personal lessons she learned about her father. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. By the way, don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. <laughs> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Mikhail Dekel was born in Haifa, Israel, to a Holocaust refugee father and an Israeli-born mother. Over the course of seven intense years, she completed her mandatory military service, earned an LLB from Tel Aviv University's Buckman School of Law, interned at the Tel Aviv State Attorney's Office, and joined the Israel Bar Association before deciding to take a complete break. In New York, where Mikhail traveled to regroup, she worked odd jobs, sat for hours at the MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, before Monet's Water Lilies, and eventually began a graduate program in English at City College of New York, and then a doctoral program at Columbia University. She now lives in Manhattan with her family, teaches English and comparative literature at the City College and the CUNY Graduate uh, Center, and directs City, uh, uh, City College of New York's Rifkin Center for the Humanities and Arts. Tehran Children, a Holocaust Refugee Odyssey, published 2019, is a culmination of McCall's decade-long journey to understand her father and the Odyssey at the core of his young adulthood, an experience which he never talked about, though it informed every aspect of his being. His wartime Odyssey was also part of a larger chapter in the history of World War II, that of refugees in Central Asia and the Middle East. The fact that most Polish Jews who survived the war had followed this path was virtually unknown at the time when she began writing. At CNNY, McCall teaches courses on literature and theory of migrations, the historical memoir, representations of trauma, law and literature, and other topics. McCall also directs the Rifkin Center for the Humanities and Arts at CNNY, which under her leadership has supported faculty research, awarded fellowships and hosted talks, conferences, and interdisciplinary seminars that seek to broaden academic conversation. McCall, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And before we talk about your your book, Tehran Children, let's talk about you for a minute. In your bio, you mentioned that when you came to the U.S., you worked numerous odd jobs and spent time at the Museum of Modern Art. What was that transition from Israel to the U.S. like for you? Because you were you were all focused on becoming a lawyer or some sort of an attorney there, and uh, you you come to the U.S. and uh, you kind of take some odd jobs. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, you know, I was in Israel. I was under the pressure cooker. I went to, I finished high school at 18. I went to the army from 18 to 20. You know, in Israel, service is mandatory. Uh, I immediately, actually, while I was in the army, I was already in law school and then in the bar association. So I had, I did, I had not stopped for a moment for about, uh, you know, 24 years. Um, and then when I came to New York on vacation, really, technically speaking, I was, wow, this is amazing. I just want to do nothing. I want to sit and look at the water lilies, uh, which, you know, it, it was just a very freeing experience. Um, 
of course, I had to support myself. So I was working as a waitress and as a secretary and so on. And um, eventually, you know, I was thinking I'm going to go back next month. I'll go back in another month. And, you know, I never went back and I never went back to law. So I started studying literature. That's excellent. It's it's just interesting how um, different your your life changed as you made that transition because everything was you know, focused, it seemed one direction and you came, took a little break and, uh, and now you're, you've published several books, you, you publish articles and you, uh, um, teach college students and run a, um, arts center. So, uh, that's awesome. That's very cool. Appreciate you sharing. Um, it, and let's get into your book, Tehran Children, a Holocaust refugee odyssey published 2019. Uh, can you explain what it means to be a Tehran child? Yes. So to be, my father was a Tehran child. To be a Tehran child means that you were a Polish-born Jewish child who was evacuated to British-controlled Palestine. This is before Israel was founded. Israel was founded in 48. We're talking in the middle of the war, 42. These are children who, eva- who were evacuated from Tehran to mandatory Palestine, where, where they were dubbed the Tehran children. Um, and... That's all I knew anyway when I started this project. Um, in, in, a, in a larger sense, it, it, to be a Tehran child is to have been a re- World War II refugee and to have survived and been rescued um, and, um, and a, a, as a child refugee. Uh, so this is, this is um, I guess, maybe the short answer. And then if we get into the book, I can give a longer answer. <laughs> That'll work. That'll work. I, I just kind of wanted to give kind of like a little feel for where we're going with, the, with our talk with, about your book. And, and uh, so now this focuses on your father and a few other family members. Uh, could you tell us a little about your father? Give us a little family background and describe him physically as you remember him. Yeah, so uh, my father, I should start by saying, died in 93, which is the year that I came to the United States. He was um, a quiet, slightly depressive, slightly angry, enigmatic man. I mean, he was a very devoted father on the one hand, but very unreachable on the other hand. He was, um, if I had to describe him, he, he was medium height. He had slanted blue eyes, a black hair that was pulled back. Um, always very elegantly, or at least kind of neatly dressed, even though you know, he was basically you know, a, a working class man, uh, but very, very, um, he sort of presented himself in, the, in this very kind of dignified and neat way. Um, and, um, and had... Uh, a kind of soft side to him and at the same time a, a, um, maybe um, a, some sort of um, barrier right between him and the outside world. Gotcha and I appreciate you sharing that it, and it's very to me it's very poignant and understanding because you talk about him in, in the book and uh, to understand that this is who you're focused on learning more about what he went through uh, and understanding your father um, is, is something that I, I pick up very much so throughout my read. Um, you know, what I'd like to do is, is talk a little bit about your book as we move forward. And in your introduction, by the way, there are people who skip introductions. <laughs> and I could have done the whole podcast on your introduction. <laughs> Matter of fact, there are two parts in your introduction that I could have just spent the entire time on those. And I realized I need to get out of the introduction. So, um, awesome introduction. <laughs> um, 
it, it explains much, you know, for the history that you're about to share. And I have to start with something that you talk about in the introduction. You, you note, little had been written on this history, in part because until recently, archives in Russia, Poland, and Central Asia were unavailable. Can you talk about this a little bit? Because this kind of hinders you, and then it help, it's helpful as the, these things open up to you. That's right. So I, I, I said, I started out by saying that to be a Tehran child was to be a refugee, a Holocaust refugee. But what does that mean? Most of the Holocaust stories that we know take place in Nazi-occupied Poland. This story takes place when Polish Jews flee from Nazi-occupied Poland into the Soviet Union. Now, in the Soviet Union and in Russia today and in Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and later Iran, which are places these refugees, my father and these other refugees get to, archives were not available for a long time, as long as the Soviet Union was existed. And even now, they're not exactly, you can't exactly go to Uzbekistan and say, hey, I want to go into the KGB archive and Xerox everything. That's not going to happen. These are dictatorships. And even, even if they're not dictatorships, uh, in, for example, in Russia, there is still a kind of Soviet mentality in some places. So they're not going to readily let you into the archives. Um, so I had to, to research clandestinely, for example, in, in Uzbekistan and pretend to be a regular tourist. So one of the reasons why the story and the extent of it has not been known is because these archives only recently have opened and to the degree that they're open, they're not completely um, completely open. So the story has had to be pieced together over a long time and I'm sure it's gonna be the first of many books that will research these histories in various ways. Well, it's, it's powerful and it's amazing the, the type of uh, obstacles that you did encounter from having records that are just recently opened to what you talked about. I mean, something else you mentioned in the book is that uh, some areas didn't have, uh, um, they don't today have uh, access to the internet, <laughs> which That's right. uh, would stand in your way as well. And, uh, and then uh, some of your stories, I mean, you've almost got a, in some possibility in some areas of your book, you outline just basically what uh, would be the introduction to a thriller as the, person who's trying to help you wants you to be a little quiet or talking around certain people and where, wherever you are, which I thought that was fascinating in itself. Um, so I, I'm guessing that kind of lends itself to that mentality that you were talking about, the Soviet mentality. Yeah, you know, the book is, is really, uh, you know, it's part history, part memoir, part travelogue. It, you know, so it, it attempts to, to be very, I mean, it is, I hope, very intimate a very intimate history of my father, but it also traverses, as you, you know, these, ex, you know, these expansive distances into all these countries. And, and so the book is not just about the past, it's about the present, right? How, are the, how is the story remembered in these various places that I travel to? And this is not a trivial question, right? Because, you know, I'm researching across seven or eight decades of communism and of other ideologies. So I'm sort of working as a, in a way as a, an archeologist trying to sift through all these layers of ideology and people telling you kind of stories that are not really true. And so in order to get to the core of this, this story. I, you know, and I gotta say this right there, cause you, even in part of your book, you mentioned where um, one of the 
the communities, one of the countries that had decided to start changing the way the history was told. And, uh, you know, you, you make a comment about that. And I can only imagine, like you said, as an archaeologist, you've really become an archaeologist and anthropologist studying, um, trying to f- kind of sort through everything that uh, is layered on top of the history. That's right. And also, you know, I'm working across national boundaries. History is told by nations. Each nation has its own version. The Tehran children has a version in Israel. It has a version, some version in Iran. And so I'm the person who walks between all of them and in a way connects all the different versions, right? And and refugees a lot of times fall in between national histories because they, they pass through. They're not part of the history. And I have to take that into account as well. And I, and I got to tell you, I think this is part of what makes your, your, your book is powerful because of the history that you're un, unveiling, but it's also, it's so readable uh, and you're, and you're, you go back in time and you come back forward and you talk about what's going on and uh, your, your writing style is just so strong and uh, it, it compels the reader to keep reading. So I, kudos to you about that. I want to make sure I say that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I made an attempt to really write that kind of book that anybody could read. And I really do have, and I do, when, now that the book is out, I have invitations from, from um, just local communities and I have invitations from Harvard and Yale and so on. Um, and because it's, there's no, I don't see, there's no point of writing something that nobody will read, right? <laughs> exactly. Awesome. And, you know, every, I, I got to tell you, as a, as, as a former history teacher and a multiple degrees in history, you know, there's a lot of history books out there that never kept the, the idea of the reader in mind. So, right. so kudos and it's, it's so powerful. So, you know, you introduced the reader to, is it Salar? Uh-huh. And uh, could you share a little bit about him and then talk about this a little from page 13, you say, I was banned as an Israeli citizen from traveling to Iran, but Salar traveled there often and could research. Yeah, so Salar Abdo is my colleague at City College. He is an Iranian-American writer. And in some ways, he started me on this path because he, in a, in, a, in a faculty party at my university, he asked me about, he said, do you know anything about child refugees in Iran? And I said, yes, my father was one. And th- that conversation started everything. I, even though I have an American citizenship, uh, my passport says born in Haifa, Israel, and as I think you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, Iran and Israel are adversaries, and so an Israeli citizen or even a person who was born in Israel it isn't, cannot just travel to, to Iran and do research there, and Salah was very kind to do the research for me. He goes back a lot, and he was able to to do some of that and also help me with other aspects of translations and so on. Um, of this book, he was not the only one. I had in each one of those places, I had a host or someone who helped me. And my relationships with those people are described in the book as well, because I was writing a Jewish history, but my research assistant in Uzbekistan, for example, who is a Korean Uzbek, has his his own family history of exile and deportation and trauma and suffering. So it's not that people just help you they have their own histories that they share with you and you're looking at all of these histories that are some where there are a lot of parallels and sometimes they clash and it's very it's a very powerful dialogue that you're having first with Salar but then with other people 
just amazing. And it, it, it shows again, some of the barriers as well as some of the links you had to go to in which to uncover and to um, develop this, uh, your, your, his, your history. So just uh, amazing. You know, throughout the book, you have an ongoing theme that shares the many possibilities that could have been your father's possibilities. For example, in chapter four, you Kaznick's, you say, and is it Hannon? Hannon. Hannon? Mm-hmm. Um, who is your father, right? That's his, that's that's his, his name. That's his name. Um, Hannon did not become Beck. And this is a whole section in this book where there's a gentleman whose name is Beck talking and telling a story. What hit you as you learned more about the Tehran children and their journey to Palestine that makes you share what could have been your father's story. I mean, can you talk just a little bit about that? Cause that this, this, you have this ongoing theme that this could have happened. This could have been my father's story. This could have been my father's story, but it wasn't. Can That's right. So, I mean, I think my, a lot of my book is about identity, right? So we have our fathers and we know our fathers as they are, right? My father was an Israeli. He actually worked for the Israeli air force. And I didn't think of him as anything else, but an Israeli. But when you're researching a refugee story, you realize that, Refugees don't go from point A to point B directly. Along the way, each point that was a point of transit for my father was an end point for many people, for many other people. So, for example, my father's family was deported to a labor camp in Siberia. Eventually, they were released. They continued on. But some people did not leave Siberia. They said, we have small children. Uh, Where are we going to go? Uh, maybe we'll go to the next town in Siberia. Maybe somebody gave them a cow and they said, okay, we have a cow. We'll have milk. We'll survive for the rest of the war. Then they got trapped behind the Iron Curtain and they became Soviets. They became then Russians. People stayed in Uzbekistan. People stayed in Iran. So in, when I traveled to those places, I think, wow, actually my father could have stayed here. And the person that I'm interviewing actually could have been him. Of course, he wouldn't have been my father, but um, it, it's, it's a very simple but startling point to think about a refugee story in this way, because I think originally when I started, I had a fantasy of my father sort of almost being sort of magically evacuated from Poland to mandatory Palestine through Iran, but it's not like that. It's a very arbitrary path. It's, it's just... It, it's an ongoing theme and it's so, I, I like what you say about that identity. That's, that's really, you know, learning that identity and what, what that identity means and, and what those possible paths were. That's uh, it, it comes out loud and clear in the book. Um, you know, in, in chapter five, I am a Jew. I am an Uzbek. You shared this in accordance with Soviet policy, those released from gulags and prisons received a free railway pass and a stipend of 15 rubles a day, but former inhabitants of special settlements who technically had not been shut away in camps and prisons received no pass and no stipend once they were outside their settlement. Could you explain the impact this had on your father and his family members? Yeah, so, so my father and his family and hundreds of thousands of other people were deported by the Soviets to what are called special settlements. Technically, these are not punitive, although they are punitive. Basically, they're sort of slave laborers. Um, when, as, but gulags are prison, penitentiary, um, penitentiary um, camps where they get re-education and punishment and so on. So when they were released, they were released, they were just released with nothing. Um, and they, you, you're sort of thrown into the world 
into the Soviet world, that which where there's little food for the general population and you have nothing. I mean, they had a little bit of belongings that they brought with them. Um, and so many people died on these releases, on these on route to Soviet Central Asia, which is where they continue to, because they had no um, means of subsistence. I said they didn't get train, train tickets, so some of them walked. They literally walked thousands and thousands of miles uh, from Akhangetsk, which is all the way in northern Russia, to, this, to Uzbekistan, which is in the south. And these are small children. I mean, many of my father and, and other and other children. I mean, I think we. I had a, my my son was when I was writing this. He was a small child, and I would always think, "Wow, it's so hard to get him to walk from like one block to another in New York." And how do you walk thousands of miles? But I guess you do that when you're trying to survive. Very much so. It's just uh, trying to imagine that and uh, um, everything from and kind of wheeling and dealing and trying to figure out how to uh, get somebody to help you. I mean, there's there's some uh, issues in and around trains and uh, different uh, issues that come up in uh, as people who were helpful start having trouble with the competition for food or running out of food, you know, just trying to figure out how to uh, circumvent or uh, to uh, deal with this sort of, uh, you know, you, you kind of had to, you, not kind of, you had to think on your feet and figure out as a young child, you know, things that, uh, um, you know, you hopefully never had to have to as an adult, nevertheless as a child. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and these, my father and his sister grew up in a, in a city in Poland. They grew up in a wealthy family, in a big family. They basically never left their hometown. They grew up in a very protective bourgeois home and to be thrown into the world like that and where, you know, a 10 year old, 12 year old child isn't basically an adult is very, very, very difficult. And of course I had no idea about that. The, uh, you in, in your book and you, and you, uh, Read, you tell some, you, you're pulling from archival information and testimonies that were given, and there's all kinds of information that you're pulling from. On, on page 141, for example, there's an excerpt from a testimony from two Tehran children that starts this way. We worked in the cotton fields for 200 grams of grain, even the young children. The day we were given a bit of rye flour was a great occasion for us. Your research revealed much to you about your father's journey. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening here, this, this food and... Um, the situation here right so um very lucky for me the polish government exile which was uh, i mean poland was occupied so the polish government polish government exile formed in london and that government was actually collecting testimonies of refugees in iran and palestine and so on so i have children i have my father's and other people's testimonies from the war these are not, this is not memo a memoir that they wrote you know, 70 years later, this is actually, so this is very poignant. Um, they're describing the work that they did in settlements in Uzbekistan. And um, this is, um, so, so again, they are, in, they are released from special settlements in Siberia, but they go to other settlements in Central Asia. Central Asia, uh, the situation there is in some ways is worse than Siberia, if, if it's hard to imagine, but it's worse because it's very hot. So there, there are hygiene problems. Central Asia is the labor front for the Soviet army, which means that the farmers' food is, and, um, and products are being confiscated for, their, for the Red Army. So this is what they're getting. 
in order to um, to sustain. And this is really not enough. Um, they work in cotton fields. You can't eat cotton. Um, so they are really in Central Asia, refugees die in droves at this period. In a later period, aid comes in from America and so on. Things become a little bit better. But uh, there is a kind of great, great starvation. And I realized really, when I researched this, I realized what it means to be hungry, to be, to be, to starve, not to be hungry in the way that we think, oh, we didn't, we skipped lunch. Uh, and this is the kind of hunger where you can't even cry because your body doesn't produce um, tears anymore because you're so hungry and dehydrated. When I was in Uzbekistan, I talked to Uzbek farmers and they said to me, we still remember those refugees. We talk about them. We remember them coming off the trains and eating live frogs because they were so hungry. So learning that my father went through that was very, very painful, especially since he had a very um, tense relationship to, towards food. And he was always, he was sort of had a hard time throwing away food and, and so on. Um, and, 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 um, and he was to even like, look at, look at what we threw in the garbage. Um, and now I understood why. And that, that had to be very revealing because you, in your description of him in the book, you talk a little bit about, uh, his kind of, uh, um, inattentive, inattentiveness towards certain aspects and other um and then kind of like a disconnect situation as well as i i think you make the comment that you only saw him cry one time and it was uh um at, at, as a result of a movie but even the what he was crying about had nothing the tears were about hadn't was not what you thought um right. in, in that movie the deer hunter so you know it, one of the things that i want to make sure that i uh i mentioned here is that you know in they're they're going to Iran. They they end up not stopping, you know, not staying in some of these places they could have stayed, and eventually they end up in Tehran. And um, when they, uh, one of the things that you bring out in the book is that there is a uh, Tehran was a, a had a, you know a focus on the 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 German uh, um, the Nazi. Um, there's like Nazi sympathizers there, whatever they were, but they were bringing these engineers into and people into uh, I Iran to help with the, you know, aspects of their country. There's a reason why Tehran becomes a kind of a focus, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, Tehran is is an interesting, a very complex place. In '39, Tehran is Tehran is a neutral state, but it has the Shah, which is the former Shah has connections with Germany dating back to the 1920s when German engineers um, build Iran, helped build Iranian bridges and, and tunnels and so on, that when Hitler comes to power, that connection is, is, remains in place. So Iran is a neutral country that kind of falls more on the Nazi side than on the Allied side. However, they do let in German Jewish refugees under certain categories. These are refugees that they feel can help the country. So they're very pragmatic. They're very pragmatic about it, which is, which is, you know, during the war, a pretty good way to have been, right? Uh, because it did end up um, in, 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 in entry visas to, to quite a few people. Um, when these, when my father gets to Iran, that at that point, Iran has already been invaded by Anglo-Soviet forces. Um, because they're afraid that eventually Iran will fall on the Nazi side. And 
there are many, many thousands of Allied soldiers in Iran when my father comes there. So Iran is, in 1942, becomes a kind of cosmopolitan center where there are soldiers and refugees and aid is shipped from Iran and so on. A little, it's a little strange because we think of Iran very differently today, but it was a, a different situation. Very much so. And, and just as a note, by this time, how old is he now? What, he's 14 when he gets there. So he's, the war, when the war started, he was 12, and he's 14 going into 15. Thanks. And his, yeah, his sister is also there. She's 10, and a cousin is 9. And, and it's still not the, the, you know, the ending of his journey. <laughs> um, not at all. Because <laughs> he's, he's still going to end up in Palestine. You know, we've, we've got a little bit, we've got quite a bit more journey to go. And, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I say is this. In the introduction, you share, share a personal story that starts, when I was six or seven, I composed a letter to my father asking why he loved his mother more than us. You end your book, Tehran Children, on this note. It was in this dark apartment with its quiet yet breathtaking views of the Mediterranean that a girl of six or seven raised in what I now knew were relative privilege and safety and care asked her father why he loved his mother more than her. Why did you include this personal story and why did you end this way? Thank you, thank you for this question. Um, I think, so I begin by saying my father was an enigmatic person and one of the things that was very, and, and he had a somewhat tense relationship with, with us children. I have two siblings and with my mother. And, but my grandma, but with my grandmother who lived with us, he seemed to have this very loving, relationship always and he was sort of always very attentive to her and I was jealous of that as a six-year-old I was jealous I felt like my father why does my father love and is more attentive to his mother than to us after 400 pages and after this incredible journey that I he took and then I took <coughs> I knew what that was and what the reason was that they were separated he was separated from his parents in Uzbekistan so Jewish, Polish Jewish children, for the most part, were evacuated out of Central Asia to Iran without parents and without adult protectors. This was the bargain. The bargain was, we'll take the children, but we're not going to evacuate the adults. That separation, I think now, was probably the most traumatic event of, as you know, a very traumatic journey. And the reason why I think it's so dramatic is because I read children's narratives. When, so when the children get, get to Palestine, and this is British-controlled Palestine, where already there, there's a Jew, large Jewish population and it, they take care of them. But So when they arrive to safety, many of the children write, but what does it matter? We haven't been saved because our parents are still in the war. Our parents are still there. So, the, so there's tremendous guilt and there is, the children write letters trying to help their parents and they're very distraught and so on. And I think that was very much my father's story. And I think this was a key to understanding his relationship with his mother, understanding him at large, because that separation, which ended up being, I mean, the, separa the separation ended up, be, ended up being for seven years. He never saw his father again. His father died eventually in, in Europe. Um, and so I think that to me um that, that's why i chose to to begin end the book on that in that note because even with everything with the starvation and everything else 
being kind of thrust into the world as a child without your parents and without without adults who are adults who are take, who are protecting you and watching out for you was very difficult. This is just, and it's such a powerful way to start, but by bringing it full circle to the end, it really ties everything together. And, you know, this, this better understanding of who your father was and what he went through and, and the things that probably shaped his uh, behaviors that you saw and the, the person you knew. Uh, I, your, your, your book is, uh, it, it just, uh, it un- reveals a history that most people know nothing about. And, uh, and I thank you for all the time and effort that you put into it. It is so readable. It is so powerful. And it, you feel um, the, these, these stories come, come to life as, as you uh, um, tell us your, about your father's journey. Um, you. before- I, I want to say just, you know, one more thing that, uh, you know, I think what it's, it's as if I, I give a historical answer to a psychological problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's that's what this book is about. I don't separate the psychology and the emotional parts from the historical part. I ask who was my father and then I give this long historical answer and I end up on on an emotional and psychological note. Which is it just it, it's so it's so right there and that's so on the money. I, I can't thank you enough, Nicole. I Before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? And also, would, do you want to share anything about the Rifkin Center? Yes. So first of all, follow me on Twitter. Um, so one of the things that happened, I wrote this book, the book came out and um, I was not a big social media person before the book. So <laughs> now my publisher is saying, no, 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 you have to be on Twitter. So please follow me on Twitter. It's Dekel Michal is my handle at Dekel Michal. I also have a website, michaldekel.com, one word. And you can connect, you can write me on that where there was a way to write me. So if you read my book, if you have any questions, if you want to share stories, please do connect with me. Um, and, my, and also my information is available, my city college information and so on. So you can definitely find me in, in many uh, venues, but Facebook, Twitter, especially, and my website. Rifkin Center, um, and you can follow Rifkin Center on Twitter as well. Rifkin Center is a humanities and arts center that brings people together to have the con- kind of conversations that m- my colleagues and I are interested in, which very much what the questions that I ask in the book, questions about identity, about the different stories, national stories, and how they connect and how they differ. Um, and uh, it's a very lively place. Uh, I don't know how many of, if you, of your um, listeners are in New York, but if they are in New York, I invite you to our events. Rifkincenter.com is the website, and we always hold fantastic conferences and talks and so on. And please um, feel that they're free. Um, so follow us and come to our events. Excellent. And, uh, and by the way, a large group of my listeners are from the New York, New Jersey area. So Fantastic. I should be taking you up on it. The, uh, Michal, thank you so much for talking with us today about you, your father and your book, Tehran Children, a Holocaust Refugee Odyssey, published 2019. So powerful. Your writing compels as does a story. The reader, you know, just compels the reader to keep wanting to know more. Your focus is enlightened the world, the history that had been lost to time. You know, your father's experiences have now been shared and I thank you for pursuing that. It's, uh, it's, it's eye-opening and I wish the best in all that you do. Thank you so much, Steve. Great talking to you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators.
opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.